Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for that. It is good enough for us. So what do we do with it? Given this moment in history, what do we do with it? Make it clear, please. In Jesus' name, amen. A friend of mine named Gene Sequeira sent me a story this last week. I read the story. It's unbelievable. I'm going to share it with you right now. It's a short story. I have it written up right here. It appears on the website. This is where you can get it if you'd like a copy of it. It, it appears on the website revivalandreformation.org. You go to that website, you'll know which story you're, you're asking for. All right? It's written by, it's, it's titled Angels All Around by Melanie Coleman. And at the bottom it says, Melanie Coleman is a pastor's wife and mother of three. She and her family live in Southern Oregon. Well, Karen and I used to pastor in Southern Oregon before coming here. So kind of picture that area. She's writing now, okay? I'm going to share an almost unbelievable story, but it's true. It just happened a couple weeks ago. So we're talking about fairly fresh here. My husband is a pastor in the U.S. state of Oregon. So this is an international website, so it just explains where, the, where Oregon is. And it was opening night of our evangelistic series, Revelation of Hope. Hmm. I've been encouraging more prayer in our church, so I decided that I would oversee the prayer room during the series. My team consists of mostly homebound elderly friends or people praying from their homes, so I wasn't sure how much participation I would have during the meetings. I decided to create a prayer room anyway, hoping that some of the church members would be willing to come in and pray periodically during the meetings. That first Friday night, it was just me. I felt alone, but I prayed anyway. Again, Sabbath evening, it was just me. I felt a bit more discouraged. I put on a beautiful rendition of the Lord's Prayer. And while it played, I prayed, I know that where two or three are gathered together in your name, you are there, Lord. But, but what if it's just me? I prayed silently. When the song finished, I opened my eyes and the room was full of angels. I started crying as I looked around the room in amazement. The angels were tall, as tall as the ceiling, with broad shoulders. They stood shoulder to shoulder with their backs to the wall all around the edges of the room. I felt tiny compared to them. They had wings and wore flowing robe-like clothes. I was drawn to their faces. They looked like men, very handsome. Their, their eyes were so kind, and they smiled gentle, comforting smiles. Their facial features were defined, and they had a warrior-like atmosphere of boldness about them. Their dark hair flowed down to their shoulders, and they looked almost iridescent. While I couldn't see through them, I almost could. Their forms shone with yellow-white color. I was only able to see them for four or five seconds, and then they were gone, but I couldn't stop crying for the rest of the evening. I had been so discouraged. Wondering if God could work if it was only me in the prayer room. He showed me in a miraculous way that if one person is praying, it is enough. I feel so unworthy and humble that he would give me this great gift. I still cry often as I think about this sacred experience. I continue to pray in our church prayer room alone. But I'm no longer discouraged, for I know the room is full of angels, even though I can't see them. I just had to share. We must never underestimate the power of prayer. Even if just one person is praying, that's enough. God is at work even when we can't see. You know, a bunch of women came back from the tomb. They said, we saw angels. 
and the men, skeptics that men are, just kind of laughed. <laughs> yeah, you were crying awfully hard, weren't you? <laughs> Turns out the gospel writers believed those women. And every gospel that records it is because a woman testified through tears, I saw angels. So I'm not just quickly dismissing that story and saying, <laughs> emotionalism. Can you believe it? I have a feeling one day that in eternity we're going to discover that the angels were absolutely enmeshed with us in the mission of God on this earth to save every man, woman, and child alive. And we never knew it. That, that, that singing that we had today, William, and your team, thank you. That was just beautiful. And I'm sure the angels who were lying in these walls were singing with us. They love it when God is glorified and His name is praised. Turns out that we're beginning a brand new series right now, and the series is titled Prepared Question Mark. Are we? And this, the teaching today begins, wouldn't you know it, with an angel story, an angel who showed up to an old man in church. And when the old man walked out to all the worshipers who were waiting for him, and he said, hey, listen, I have seen an angel, he communicated to them. <laughs> The story is so familiar to us, maybe it doesn't even need to be repeated. But you see, the angel that showed up had a line tucked in, his very last line, and it's a line that becomes the meme and the mission of this generation right now. And I'm talking about, yeah, Gen Zers and Millennials and Gen Xers and, like I said, OK Boomers and, and the silent generation and all. One line. Let's go to that angel speaking to that elderly man. Open your Bible to the, to the Gospel of Luke. You've got to see this for yourself. Luke chapter 1. Didn't bring a Bible? Grab the pew Bible in front of you. Page 688 in the pew Bible. Didn't bring a pew Bible? Grab that phone in front of you and find it. Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin with the words of the angel. That's verse 13. I'm in the New International Version. Whatever you have is going to work perfect. Luke chapter 1, verse 13, but the angel, and we know the angel's name because he introduces himself in a few moments later, Gabriel. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Now, let me, let me just show you what's going on. At this moment. So go back to verse 7. You see verse 7 there? But they, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. There is no in vitro fertilization taking place here for that elderly couple. We're talking about a pure, real life miracle. They're going to give birth to a baby. Speaking of that baby, John, keep reading. Verse 14, and he, John, will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. And he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And here it comes, verse 17. We're looking for our meme. Is there a mission for me today? You're asking. Here it is, verse 17. And he, John, will go, go on before the Lord, our Lord Christ himself, in the spirit and power of Elijah 
to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. And here it is, to make ready a people, what? A people prepared for the Lord. Wow, that's quite a line. The predicted birth of John the Baptizer miraculously born to herald Christ's first coming. i got to think out loud with you. Let's kind of check the logic of this. See, see if I'm, I'm off base here. Check it out. If God raised up a baby, a man, to prepare the world for the Messiah's first coming, would it be okay to maybe conclude that before the Messiah's second coming, he will raise up, not one man, he will raise up a generation before Jesus comes. Does that make any sense? Now, I need to tell you something. Our friend Gabriel, and he's going to be a friend of ours one day, the most majestic living angel in the universe, took the place of our dreaded enemy. Our friend Gabriel has quoted, when, he speak, when he's speaking to old man Zechariah, he has actually quoted the words of a prophecy on the last page of the Old Testament that has second coming, fire and judgment written all over it. He's quoting a second coming prophecy to talk about the first coming. You've got to check this out. So go to Malachi. That's the last book of the Old Testament. Go to the last page of the Old Testament. So you get back to Matthew and then just go one page before Matthew and that's Malachi. The last chapter of Malachi is Malachi chapter 4. Watch this. This is what Gabriel quotes to Zechariah. Let's just set it up. Verse 1. So this is Malachi chapter 4 verse 1. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. It's a picture of absolutely cataclysmic destruction. It's what the Bible calls the day of the Lord, which always describes the second coming of Christ. Now watch this. Drop down to verse 5. See, now here's where Gabriel borrowed heavily for Zechariah. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. That's about as cataclysmic as you can imagine. So Gabriel goes to the second coming picture of Jesus. And he says, by the way, that's what John is going to do. So now we don't have to guess. Is the logic strong? Are you kidding? The corroboration, we just, we just saw it. The conclusion is that just as John the baptizer was raised up to prepare for the Messiah's second coming, there will be a people at the end of time also raised up to prepare for the Messiah's number two coming. That's the point. What's that line? Put it on the screen again for us, please. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The tagline of John's mission has everything to do with the mission of the end time generation. And that would be you. And that would be me. And that, that includes the angels who will join in this sprint to the end zone. To make ready a people 
prepared for the soon coming Lord. I'm going to admit something to you. For months now, I've been brooding over that one line that was just on the screen. What do I do with this? God. In fact, the line is so important to me, I've printed it out and I've taped it on the wall where I have worship and I meet him every morning. I brooded over this line with seven questions, brooding kind of questions in my mind, and I don't mind sharing them with you. Question number one, as I look at that line, I wonder, is the faith community I belong to, from the youngest to the oldest, even aware anymore of our raison d'etre, as the French would put it, our reason for existence? Are we aware of it? Question number two, do the newest among us, and I'm talking about you Gen Zers, do the newest among us have any inkling to the high destiny that you've been born to? Has anybody told you yet? Question number three, oh God, I wonder, is this the time to sound the earnest call for those who believe in the soon coming of Christ to rise up and embrace this divine mission? Or, question number four, have we already abandoned our mission? Have we already given, our, given up our hope? Are we settling down for a long winter's nap? Question number five, should I fear for my church? Should I fear for my own soul? Question number six, dear God, isn't it time for us? Look at it. I understand that all ten virgins in Jesus' parable slept, right? They all, all ten slept. I understand that. But is this the time for us to be aroused from paralyzing lethargy, from our dangerous slumber? God, what would you do if you were here? Question number seven, the last one. When will we hear God's high calling to a radical Christianity and a radical Adventism that has not even been tried yet? Apparently, we're not alone in this lethargic miasma. One of the bright minds and luminary thinkers of this generation is David Brooks. He's a writer and commentator. His latest book, The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. I'm reading the book thanks to the gift of a friend, okay? In the book, Brooks describes what he calls... I'll put this on the screen for you because it's a tongue twister. What he calls the moral directionlessness of this generation. He says, this is our generation. And by the way, when he says generation, he's not talking about Gen Zers and, or millennials or, 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 or Xers or boomers. Or, no, no, no. He, said, he means everybody alive right now in this culture. That's, that's the miasma that we suffer from. Moral directionlessness. And by the way... He, descri he, he describes moral directionlessness as coming from a loss. Listen, listen, listen. It, 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 it arises out of a loss of purpose. I don't know why I exist. Wow. So, Brooks, loss of purpose leads to moral directionlessness. David Brooks on the screen. If you don't know, he writes, what your life is for, how does it help to be told that your future is limitless? Now, you can have a graduation, three graduation speakers standing on this platform in just a few weeks, and they're going to tell you, you can dream anything you want, you can go anywhere you want, you can be anything you want, the future is limitless for you. But if you don't know why you exist, that only ups the pressure. 
as Brooks notes, correctly. Brooks goes on. Eventually, there's no escaping the big questions. All right, so I love the way he formulates these three questions. When's the last time you asked yourself these three questions? They don't sound like anything you would have thought to ask, but I'm going to put them in front of you. Look at David Brooks. Question number one, what's my best life? Am I living my best life? Are you living your best life now? Is this the best that life gets? Am I living? What's my, what's my best life? Question number two, what do I believe in? When's the last time you did inventory of, of your beliefs? I mean, really, what do you believe in? Do you believe? And then question number three, where do I belong? Am I where I belong? What do, where do I belong? And then he quotes the Danish Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard on the screen. Kierkegaard once summarized the question, the big question, this way. He, quoting him now, what I really need to be clear about is what I am to do, not about what I must know. It is a question of finding a truth that is truth for me, of finding the idea for which I am willing to live and die. Have you found that yet? It is for this my soul thirsts as the deserts of Africa thirst for water, end quote. Wow, why do I exist? What is the purpose for my life? Why was I born? God, tell me. These are existential questions. And it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. Everybody here has to answer them. So what's the answer? What were you born for? What lights your fire and keeps you driven now? I want to say something. And this is especially true if you're young right now. Because if you don't find the answer... Let me rephrase that. If you don't find the answers at the beginning of your life, you will spend the rest of your life trying to find the answers. Find them now. Find them now. There's a reason you're here. God dreams you into existence. Find that answer. And then he, he turns to Friedrich Nietzsche to drive the point home. On the screen, Nietzsche says, oh, this is good. Nietzsche says that he who has a why to live for can endure anyhow. Do you know why you live today? Why do you exist? If, keep reading, Brooks now, if you know what your purpose is, you can handle the setbacks. Doesn't matter what happens to you if you know why you live so what's all this have to do with John the Baptizer and you and me? I tell you what, it has everything to do. You think about it. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord is the great why. Look at that line. Burn that line into your consciousness. Never forget it. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord is the great why. Not only for John the Baptist to prepare the world for the Messiah's first coming, it's the great why for you and me to prepare the world for the Messiah's coming number two. It's the great why. John knew why he existed. He knew. Do you know why you exist? I tell you what. Brothers and sisters, this one line is a home run pitch. 
You know what a home run pitch is? That means the pitcher throws this thing so slow, so slow that you're going to knock it out of the park. It's the perfect pitch. You are now given the perfect pitch. This is why you exist. One line. Put it on the screen again for us, please. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I want to tell you something. In fact, let me just talk to the young now for a moment. God is offering you, seriously, God is offering you a reason to live that will clear your head like a dab of green wasabi on your sushi. You ever eat wasabi like us Japanese do? I mean, you take a little bit of wasabi, sinus problems, none, gone. Oh, that's hot. Here's your head. To prepare a people for the Lord. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord will clear your head of the insufferable questions that have been going through your mind these last few months and even years. Some of you have been wrestling over this. Number one, what should I do for the rest of my life? Number two, what career is God calling me to? Number three, what's my future going to look like? This will clear your head. Because you think about it now. Think, 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 think with me. If you will embrace this line as the why of your life, to make ready the people you know for the return of the Lord, it won't matter what your career becomes. It won't matter where your career unfolds. It won't matter how much or how little your career makes. If you Make this one line to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Your life mission, it will bring such a razor focus to your living, not only for the why that you exist, but also for the what you can do and how you can do it while you exist. Come on. Look, it. if you're going into medicine, all right, you're going into medicine or health care, that's great. Face every patient as an opportunity to help that life preter- prepare for the return of Jesus. You say, I'm not going into medicine and healthcare. Okay, if you're going into accounting and law, oh, that's splendid. Good. Then face every client as an opportunity to prepare that person for the soon coming of Jesus. Say, I'm not going into any of that. I'm going into teaching. Hallelujah. You're going into teaching. Then see every young student that sits before you as a divine opportunity to prepare that child in his early 20s for the soon coming of Jesus. Listen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're going into the arts or you're in the sciences or you're in aerospace or you're in architecture or you're in the service industry or you are applying some sort of trade. It doesn't matter what color the collar you wear is. It may be a blue collar. It may be a white collar. It may be no collar. Even if you don't know yet what your career is going to turn out to be, if you embrace this life mission, you can wed it to that eventual choice and you will never be the same again. It will be fire that will compel you to live only for Jesus wherever you go, wherever He sends you. To make ready... Oh, look at that again. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord will bring a razor focus not only to why you exist, but also to what you can do and how you can do it while you exist. Knowing that made all the difference in the world for John. 
And I'm going to tell you, knowing that will make all the difference in the world for every year between now and the end of your life or the return of Christ. You've got to know the why. You've got to know the why. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to speak a warning into your consciousness right now. I'm going to warn you. Listen. You need to understand this. This is a dangerous mission. The one you were born for. You will be opposed from the day that you embrace it. Because Gabriel has a counterforce in this universe who will seek to crush your determination to live by this solitary line. The story does not always end well. I mean, that's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer is trying to tell us in these immortal words of Bonhoeffer. You know these words. I put it on the screen for you. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a woman, he bids her come and die. Bonhoeffer died soon after those words. John the Baptist died a brutal death. Do you know that Jesus one time, the pre-incarnate Christ, actually personally chose... I want that baby right there. I want that baby to be the forerunner of my mission on earth. Hang on to that baby. Keep an eye on him. That's my, that's my forerunner. John was picked before he was born. And I need you to know that on the authority of Jeremiah chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 1, you too were picked before you were born. God has a vision for you. But the bottom line mission is absolutely clear. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's you. Oh, it would, John would end up paying... A tragically very high price, a deadly price, his head on a silver platter price. You're going to be opposed, but it's time you had something to live for. It's time to have something to die for, and your life will never be the same again. Once you know, this is your why. You were born for this. You were. And it is your why. You want something easy? Okay, okay. Then you be a part of the 80% of young adults today who have no clue what their life purpose is. David Brooks quotes a study. This is, this is amazing. Here's the study. David Brooks. He found this, from this study, I'm quoting now, only 20% of young adults have a fully realized sense of purpose. End quote. 80%, no clue. Just live for today. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. Is that what you live for? Is that the passion of your life? Instead, I want to appeal to you to join the, the elite 20%. Join the elite 20%. You don't have to live in a miasmatic fog. You can live with clarity to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Put that up again, please. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Live for that. That's your why. Oh, come on. You're right. It's, it's high risk. I'm telling you. <laughs> this, this is high risk. But I got great news for you. The higher the risk, the greater the reward. You settle for low risk? Little low, low risk life? That's what you're living? <laughs> Low reward, low reward. 
The higher the risk, the greater the reward. Just stand at the foot of the cross. Just stand at the foot of the cross. Look at that stained, coagulating blood on Calvary. The higher the risk, the greater the reward. To make ready a people prepare for the Lord, John died for that. Guess what? Jesus died for the same mission. Same mission. It's the idea. Christ came to make ready a people prepare for the Lord. The mission that John has, the mission that Jesus had, is the mission you now have, you now are granted. You're invited to embrace it. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. High risk, <laughs> you got it. High reward, you cannot imagine the reward that's waiting for you. When you invest your life, whatever your career turns out to be, in this life and death mission, man, it doesn't get any better than this, I'm telling you. There's only one way to define this mission. I'll spell it for you and put it on the screen. R A D I C A L. Radical. I have the privilege of meeting with nine young adults. They're all undergrads here at Andrews University. We meet every other Tuesday evening. And I said, hey, guys, I want you to go home and think about this word, and I want you to send me an email. Give me your definition of radical. To, what, to a Gen Zer, what is radical? I got, the, I got the responses right here. Can't read them all? Let me read some of them. Here's one. Oh, I believe being radical in this sense, is to focus on someone or something so earnestly that it changes your life. Oh, you got that right. Someone, a radical follower, is someone who does not only see God as their Savior, but earnestly wants others to be saved. As God and the main goal of radically following, as God is that main goal, the news about His soon coming should, spread, should be spread radically as well. More than ever, our generation seems to be the least connected to Jesus. So it is up to us not to only work with people outside the church, but listen to this, for, but rather we are to work for those who are already in the church who are desensitized to this mission. Many Gen Zers who are in the church most likely don't care even about thinking about being ready because we're so absorbed in our own lives, only thinking about where we will be in our worldly future rather than putting more focus on getting ready for our future in heaven. You go, Gen Zer. Well put. Here's another one. I would describe a radical follower of Jesus as being someone that truly does and follows what God and the Bible shows them. Even if this means it is in an opposite direction that the church they are a part of is going. Stand up and tell the church, you're going the wrong way. We're supposed to be going this way. Oh, I like that. They will even go in a different direction than what their friends and family are. I think that my peers would respond in a manner that does... that. that, that, that in a manner of what does this, they're going to respond with, what does this mean for us today? I think people would be receptive if it were shown to them that they are included in the mission right now, not just when you get older. You nailed it. It's good. Here's another one. How do I define radical? Any extreme action taken to complete a goal you desire to complete against the norm, pushing the limits. Now, he unpacks this undergrad unpacks this. I think one thing that all young people can agree on is that no one likes being pressured into something, right? <laughs> Me too. Oftentimes, young people are taught that, that their life with God is a duty, not a relationship. 
I think that the best way to get people to be interested in being someone with the spirit and power of Elijah is by being that yourself. Leadership, including spiritual leadership, must always involve transparency. We will be people who make other people's lives better by having a clear mission, love. If our main focus is to love one another in the spirit and truth, we will do these things. We will prepare people for the coming of the Lord. We will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And we will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. You go. Two more. Using the context of Luke 1, I would define radical as that which goes against the typical status quo of what secular societal norms have taught us to prioritize. Being radical in the righteous sense requires one to forego what the rest of the secular world may deem as typical. In today's society, doing the morally right thing against all odds is often seen as a radical move. However, over time, even the definition of moral objectivity has become frayed and distorted as postmodernism continues to hold influence even in the church. Very well put. One more. In reality, I feel that Gen Zers may be hesitant to give up a life of societal comfort, just as some were hesitant to follow Jesus in his time. However, I feel there's, there is greater opportunity now more than ever to spread the news on how important this truly personal mission is in the greater good of everyone's lives. The mission holds power, notably in the evidence of the impact this personal mission has had on the lives of successfully radical followers of Christ. These personal testimonies could lead fellow Gen Zers to understand the gravity and importance of this mission to make people ready, a people prepared for the Lord. Pretty impressive. You got it. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Guess what? There is no more radical reason to live. There is no more radical mission to serve than to join John and the angels in following Jesus to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Yeah, I join you. Amen. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.